It's time for Legally Speaking with Michael Mulligan, barrister and solicitor with Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Morning, Michael. How are we doing? Good morning. I'm doing great. Always good to be here. Good to hear your voice back as well. Oh, you have no idea how frustrating it is for me not to be able to speak. It really was a a test of my uh, my restraint, just staying home as long as I did. Some really interesting cases on the docket today. I'm reading number one. Can you successfully sue a judge if you are improperly convicted? That's a really good question. Uh, So the case that uh, was just released by the... uh, uh, B.C. Supreme Court dealt with that issue in an interesting fact pattern. Uh, the background of the case was that the man involved was uh, convicted of uh, improperly touching for sexual purpose a young girl whom he was tickling at a family cabin. That was the fact pattern. Uh, there were no other witnesses to it. Um, he was convicted. Uh, his conviction was then overturned on appeal. He was sent back and at another trial where he was convicted by another judge, the decision of which was appealed successfully. And the man following and following that, the Crown didn't proceed any further with the charges. Uh, They stayed the prosecution, discontinued it. Hmm. And that led to the man suing a number of people, uh, including uh, the judge at the second trial. Uh, And as one might expect, there are uh, some significant limitations on uh, when you would be able to successfully sue a, a judge for a decision they've made. Um, now, sometimes people ask, can I sue somebody for something? And the answer to that is usually, well, yes, you can. The better question would be, can you successfully sue somebody for something? Yes. Uh, and so the Supreme Court judge was hearing this application about whether the claim against the judge should be dismissed. Uh, and the... Um, a uh, judge hearing that application went all the way back to a, a decision by Lord Denning, uh, which says uh, this. Um, judges should each be able to do his uh, work in complete independence and free from fear. He should not have to turn the pages of his books with trembling fingers, asking himself, if I do this, shall I be liable in damages? Right, hmm. one of the early cases on that. And so the idea there is there should be independence. Judges should be able to make decisions without worrying about, oh my God, am I going to be sued and lose my house over this decision? Now, that brings us to what was the judge alleged to have done wrong here? Um, and the man had, uh, on the second judge, the man had two complaints. One complaint was that the judge had reversed the burden of proof, like he alleged that the judge had put the burden on him to prove his innocence rather than the Crown having to prove his guilt. Um, And the man pointed to the fact that in the judge's decision, um, the judge said, well, look, the man testified and said that he didn't do this, but there wasn't other evidence to support the man saying he didn't do it. Therefore, I reject what the man had to say. And he said, well, hold on. That's kind of putting it on me to prove that I didn't do it, which is the opposite of what should happen. Hmm. Now, that was one of his arguments. The other argument is an even more interesting one. The other argument involved, to what extent is a judge allowed to edit their reasons? Hmm. Because some judge, some judgments that judges issues are issue are in writing. They type out the reasons and just issue them in writing. So that's that. Yes. In other cases, judges issues their decisions and reasons for their decisions orally. They come into court and read them. Then, if there is a transcript ordered, um, there's a, I should say in court now, everything said in court is audio recorded. 
It used to be years ago that we had court reporters who would sit there and they would take notes on a machine uh, shorthand and then type up a transcript of one was ordered or read back to shorthand. But now everything is recorded. And this will be a surprise to many people. But when you order a transcript of what was said in court, including the reasons that a judge gave, which can be very important because that's what would be looked at to determine should there be a successful appeal? How did the judge reach their decision? Did they make a mistake? Did they apply the wrong law? Did they get the evidence wrong? It's pretty important. The trial judge has the ability to edit the written transcript before it's provided to anyone. Wow. Uh, and there's difference of opinion in different provinces. How much editing can they do? In Ontario, for example, the Court of Appeal there is more restrictive than in British Columbia. The Court of Appeal there has said, look, a judge could edit for punctuation, grammatical errors, but nothing more than that. In B.C., there's been some additional flexibility, including judges allowed to edit things where they, they say that the words were misspoken or to add a clarification. And so... When you order a transcript, you don't just get what was actually said in court. You get a version of what was said in court potentially changed by the judge. Hmm. Uh, and so the man argued, well, hold on. This judge, he argued, made substantive changes to what the judge said in their reasons for convicting him. And so he said, well, that's not appropriate, Right. Because if the judge said, this is why I rejected your evidence, and then changes that, well, what are you really assessing, right? Surely we should be assessing what the judge did at the time, not what upon reflection the judge concludes maybe they should have done. Yeah. And so that was the fact pattern upon which the man was suing the judge. And the man's argument was, um, well, this judge wasn't acting in a judicial capacity. They were acting in a personal capacity. Very interesting. Hmm. Now... The, I should say, the second appeal from the second conviction was allowed by the B.C. Court of Appeal. But they found that it should, the appeal should be allowed on the basis that the judge reversed the burden of proof and improperly put a burden on the man to prove his innocence. And when the judge said, I don't accept his denial because he didn't have other evidence to support his denial, that was wrong. And it was, <laughs> I should say. Uh, that's not how that should be approached. And so the Court of Appeal said, well, we don't need to deal with the degree to which the judge edited their reasons, because even on the edited version, it was not proper. So that brings us to the case against the judge. And the man was saying, well, this isn't a circumstance where uh, the, the, you know, this is sort of a judge should get uh, uh, immunity from being sued on the basis that there should be independent decision-making. The man argued, no, no, this is a judge acting in some personal capacity because a judge doesn't have immunity for everything, right? Like if the judge, I don't know, got angry and threw, the, uh, threw their water bottle at somebody and hit them. Well, that's not a judicial function, right? <laughs> they can't so, take that out of the record either. No, that's right. Edit that out. Don't put that in there. <laughs> Delete the ouch. <laughs> Your Honor, you've hit me with a water bottle. Um, so it's not as if judges have general immunity for anything they do in life or indeed anything they do in the courtroom, right? There could be some odd scenario where a judge does something in a courtroom that's not part of their judicial function. Like if they threw something at somebody or punched them or something, they're not immune from being sued or prosecuted for anything. 
It's just, is that in part of their judicial function? And on this fact pattern, the, the uh, Supreme Court judge found that, uh, no, indeed, this was a circumstance where the, what the judge did, the decision uh, and the editing, indeed, all of that was within uh, the scope of uh, sort of a judicial function. Uh, and as a result, uh, it's that important principle uh, of broad immunity would apply. Um, and I should say there are other forms of immunity in court as well that are important that allow for that same sort of independence, things like um, you have absolute immunity for things that, for example, submissions counsel might make at a trial. Otherwise, for example, if I were to stand up in court and say, look, Your Honor, in my submission, that witness was lying, right, or that witness, uh, you know, my submission uh, committed the offense or something, right? Yeah. Without immunity there, you could be sued for that, right? If you sort of went out and generally made some allegations saying, hey, that person has committed a crime or they're a liar, that could be something that could be actionable. But there's immunity provided in court, and without it, nobody could do anything, right? Counsel wouldn't, couldn't make open submissions. People couldn't testify about things, and judges couldn't make decisions. And so there is broad uh, immunity from being sued over judicial decisions. And in fact, in this case, despite that interesting fact pattern, uh, the Supreme Court judge found that uh, the claim could not proceed uh, and so uh, even though the uh, man's second conviction was overturned as have been a conviction that was uh, entered improperly because of the reverse burden of proof, that doesn't allow him to sue the judge for damages. Uh, and so the uh, judge, uh, well, they made, made a mistake, uh, doesn't uh, have to uh, also be concerned about having, as Lord Denning said, trembling fingers <laughs> when they're making a decision, which is a good thing. Uh, but... Uh, that's the outcome of this case, and so that's, uh, I thought, two interesting things, the judicial immunity and the power of judges to actually edit transcripts. So when you're seeing the decision of a judge, it may or may not be what they actually said in court. And if you were concerned about it, there is a way to figure that out, uh, because you can actually, in some circumstances, go and get the audio recording and compare what did the audio say versus what did the written transcript say. And in some cases, that might be significant, right? Yeah. Uh, as you say, as your counsel, you often are making careful notes of what the judge is actually saying in their decision. And if there was a transcript that didn't reflect what was being said, there could be an issue about whether that was appropriate, and there would be a way ultimately to get to the bottom of it. So judges editing transcripts. All right, let's take a break. We're back right after this. Legally Speaking continues here at CFAX 1070 with Michael Mulligan from Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Can a criminal charge be amended after an accused person has testified at their trial? The scenarios get more and more complex, Michael. <laughs> How do we come up with these things, I must say? The, um, so there's a, in a criminal case, you would always have a thing called an information, which would show what is a person charged with, right? So if you looked at it, you could see, okay, you know, Joe Blow is charged with assaulting Mary on this date in this place. Okay, now we know what we're all here about, right? Um, and that's important, so people can sort of focus on what a criminal case is about, right? We don't put people on trial for being a bad person or doing something wrong at some point somewhere, right? We put people on trial for a specific thing. But in what circumstance can that be changed, right? And there is authority to change what somebody is charged with even after a trial is commenced, and indeed, in this case, even after an accused person has testified, right? Um, so, like, you can imagine all the kinds of changes that might occur. Um, and so, 
This particular case was involved an allegation that a, a man went into the tent of a woman at a campground and assaulted her in the tent, right? Mm. Uh, and the man, amongst a couple of other charges, was charged with initially breaking and entering uh, with the intent to commit an indictable offense, okay? Uh, and the reason that was potentially significant in this case is that uh, there are, in Canada, we've developed this concept of general versus um, specific intent offenses. Hmm. And the reason those things are different, it turns on the mental element required to be convicted, right? Criminal law is concerned generally with people knowingly doing something wrong, right? We, we don't convict people criminally for, I don't know, tripping on the sidewalk and landing on someone, right? We convict yeah. people for assaulting people, intentionally doing something. Now, that distinction between a specific and general intent offense uh, is significant because of the role that intoxication can play, which unhappily is not an uncommon element in the criminal law. Uh, and the idea is that for a specific intent offense, a person uh, intoxication can be relevant to whether the person could have formed the sort of mental state of doing something wrong in order to be convicted. And so, for example, the thing this man was charged with, breaking and entering with the intent to commit indictable offense would require proof that the person could form that intention to break into, in this case, the tent, uh, to do something wrong, right? Uh, and there was evidence when this man testified that he'd been drinking for a long period of time. And the Crown, I think, was concerned that uh, they may or may not be successful in proving that the man was able to form the intent to co commit an indictable offense when he broke into the tent potentially because of evidence about being very, very drunk, right? Uh, now, there are other types of offenses that are general intent offenses where being very drunk when you get yourself drunk isn't a defense. Uh, and that would include something like committing an assault. And so what happened is the man testified uh, about uh, getting drunk and uh, then going into the tent. After he testified about that, the Crown applied to amend the charge from breaking and entering with the intent to commit an indictable offense to breaking and entering and committing an assault. Mm. And by that change, because an assault is a general intent offense, it no longer mattered at all whether the man got himself very drunk and whether he was able to form any plan to do anything wrong uh, when going into the tent. Uh, and so the issue on the appeal became, well, was that appropriate? Was it appropriate and permissible to change the charge the man was facing after he had testified? Uh, and the man argued on the appeal, or his lawyer argued on the appeal, that the man may not have chosen to testify at all had he been charged with breaking and entering and committing an assault, as opposed to breaking and entering with the intent to commit an indictable offense. And so the issue for the Court of Appeal was, was that appropriate when the judge permitted the charge to be changed after the man had testified? And the, the core of that is whether the change was prejudicial to the man and his defense. Uh, and on this fact pattern, even though the change to the charge was significant and happened very late in the day, like after the guy had chosen to testify, the uh, Court of Appeal found that the case was overwhelmingly strong against the man, 
uh, and that, uh, practically speaking, uh, if he hadn't testified, he just would have been convicted. Uh, and uh, there wasn't uh, much other evidence that he was extremely intoxicated, such that in the Court of Appeals view, even though there's this very late in the day change with what the man was charged with, they found that it hadn't been uh, prejudicial to him. And the court found that there wasn't sufficient evidence that he would have done something different uh, had he known that he was going to be charged with uh, assault or breaking and entering, committing an assault, as opposed to breaking and entering to commit with the intent to commit some indictable offense. Uh, and so here, at least on this fact pattern, the answer is yes. What you're charged with can change after the trial started and even after the person has chosen to testify, believing that they were charged with something else. Uh, and so that's an interesting thing people should think about, because generally that idea that, hey, you should tell somebody what the charge they're facing uh, so that they can conduct themselves accordingly, I think most people would think, well, that's kind of a, a basic element of uh, fairness, right? Um, you wouldn't want to... Uh, you know, get up and uh, try to defend yourself against uh, one charge and then find out, aha, we actually weren't uh, were interested in trying to convict you of something else. Um, oftentimes, that would be uh, the sort of very definition of what is prejudicial to somebody uh, because a person needs to be able to decide, hey, am I going to testify and what, what am I facing here? What am I talking about? Uh, and choosing to change that later would often be prejudicial. But on this particular fact pattern, it's permitted it was permitted, uh, and so uh, the answer is yes. Uh, your charge can be amended even after you've chosen to testify uh, at your trial. Wrong, wrong numbers, <clears throat> excuse me, misfiled documents, and an impaired driving appeal. Yes, so this is a, another interesting issue involving how decisions are uh, made, uh, and it involved a circumstance where a person was charged with, or not charged with, I should say, most impaired driving cases are now dealt with as administrative matters, where there isn't a criminal charge at all. Uh, they're dealt with by way of these things that are called 90-day uh, immediate roadside driving prohibitions. Uh, the government went to those because they are cheaper and faster uh, than charging somebody criminally. And so that's what happens in most impaired driving cases. They no longer prosecute them criminally uh, at all. Uh, one of the requirements under this administrative scheme is that when somebody is given one of these driving prohibitions, the police officer who gives it to them is required to file some paperwork in support of it. They need to file a report and some other certificates and so on in case there uh, is a, an appeal of the driving prohibition. Uh, and there's a requirement that all of that be served within seven days of when the person is stopped. So there could be a timely appeal. In this case, what happened is the police officer gave somebody one of these 90-day driving prohibitions. The person appealed. The officer did send in uh, their paperwork, but the registry where they sent it into misread the numbers. And so they put the paperwork in the wrong file, effectively. And then what happened is the uh, person who was charged with doing the adjudication, which I should pause, I'll get back to that in a moment, looked at the file for the appeal and said, well, the officer hasn't provided any evidence. Uh, the lawyer for the person had filed material, uh, and because there was nothing in the correct file, uh, the adjudicator, which amusingly in the decision is refer referred to as adjudicator dolphin, and I should say that's because 
these adjudicators use fake names. Hmm. I guess they're concerned about people taking it out on them if they make unpopular decisions. And so they use fake names. So amusingly, all throughout this thing, it's adjudicator dolphin. And I imagine the person is not a dolphin and they're not called Mr. <laughs> Mr. Miss Dolphin. Uh, so the dolphin uh, said, well, okay, this appeal is canceled because the police officer hasn't provided any evidence. Uh, then somebody unknown at the uh, motor vehicle branch, I guess, found the misfiled material from the police officer. Uh, and then the, uh, it, that a different adjudicator, not the Dolphin, uh, issued a decision saying, no, no, uh, we're going ahead. Uh, and we're going to uh, uh, confirm the driving prohibition after an adjournment. And so that's what went off on a review and said, well, is that permitted? Um, and one of the concepts that arose there is this concept of was the first was the was the or were the adjudicators functus, and what that mm. means basically in a legal term is like finished their legal authority to do anything. Uh, and for example, like in a criminal case, let's say a person has a trial, and the judge hears the evidence submissions and evidence. They come in and say, you know, Mr. So and So, I find you not guilty. Thank you very much. Court's adjourned. That judge couldn't come back next week and say, by the way, I thought about it some more. Guilty. <laughs> right? The idea would be, you're done. You've kind of made your decision. It's over. Uh, you, you don't get to sort of come back and try again or change your mind. And so one of the arguments was, well, look, the dolphin made the decision. Uh, the uh, you know goldfish or whoever can't come along later uh, and decide uh, that they want to do something different. You guys are all finished. If you don't like the decision of the dolphin, you better go and appeal that or something because you're done. You're functus. Uh, the uh, judge hearing this appeal uh, from the decision of the second person, who I don't think was actually Goldfish, but they, it could have been, yeah. um, found that uh, indeed that wasn't uh, this wasn't done properly. Um, it may well be that the uh, dolphin made the final decision, uh, but they should allow the uh, motor vehicle uh, immediate roadside driving prohibition uh, people, be it Dolphin or somebody else, to explain why it is they think they still had authority to do anything. And so they sent it back saying, well, if you want an opportunity to do that, you may do so, uh, but pointed out uh, that the uh, person who was stopped has already served the vast bulk of their driving prohibition, and so they should think carefully about whether it makes any sense to uh, have the dolphin give reasons for what they did or the goldfish person or whoever they were. Um, and so uh, we'll see what happens in that individual case. But it's an interesting example of that concept of being functus when a decision is uh, finalized and whether you can go back and do something uh, different. Uh, and also, I think, important for people to know <laughs> the names used by these people are fake, which does have some potential implications because, of course, for all you know, the adjudicator dolphin might be that next door neighbor that hates you or your, uh, you know, vindictive ex-husband. Uh, you would never know. Uh, but uh, there it is. The decision of the dolphin uh, has been reviewed. Michael Mulligan with Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Legally speaking, thanks so much. Thanks so much. Have a great day.